0: And uh, so, inshallah, we, we will go history. The object of studying history always is not just dates and personalities, but the object of history is to take lesson. What lessons can we derive from it and take benefit? I think from all the three sections, this is the most in- enjoyable. Just to get an idea of the history, the inception. It started off in the year 1608. So there was one company by the name of the East India Company. They came to one place in Gujarat and they asked the government for assistance and they said we will bring some goods from the European market and we will reinvest the profits back to, uh, to India. So the king of that time, Nuruddin Jahangir, he was very short-sighted. He failed to understand the policies of the British, so he gave them any concessions. By 1701, hundred years later, these people were a lot of from the future, so after hundred years now, approximately hundred years, a number of territories came under British rule. The British came to India in 1608. Shahulullah rahmatullahi was born in 1703. 95 years later. So one very pious king there was at that time by the name of Aurangzeb Alamgir, Alam A very honest, pious, and able Muslim king who became ascended the throne of Delhi. So after he passed away, there was a lot of political chaos, irreligiousness. So, Islam started going down. So, Shawalullah Rahmatullah was born four years before the death of Alam Gir Rahmatullah. Shawadullah Rahmatullah, he studied by his father, Shah Abdul Rahim who was his teacher also, his spiritual guide, his sheikh also. And he, when he came at the age of about 30, he got married at the young age of about 16, he got married. But at the age of 30, he was overwhelmed by a desire to visit Harameen Sharifin So, he went there in this place. He was, saw the Rasulullah in a dream on many occasions. And Nabi told him, you must go and work for the reformation, orga, uh, organization, and emancipation, freedom of the Muslim community in India. So he spent 14 months in Hijaz, he performed two Hajj, and then he took a lot of benefit from the muhaddithin, the great ulama of Hadith in the subcontinent. He came back, it was about the year 1740. By that time, the British had taken control of the four main territories in India. So when he saw this happening and he saw the Muslims There was many customs and Islamic customs So he started doing the following things The reforms which he did in the country The first thing he gave The greatest importance to promoting the knowledge of the Quran In the Sunnah The first person to translate the Quran Into another language And now you get translation in English In other languages The first person to make this effort was He translated the Quran Sharif into Persian And He added some few notes on it, and he called this kitab Fathur Rahman At that time, in India also, there wasn't much importance given to the study of hadith More rational sciences, logic If you study the old uh, syllabus you see of India Sometimes 17 to 20 kitabs on logic they used to do And hadith, maximum mishkat If they studied mishkat Sometimes not even mishkat was, was taught so Shaulillah Rahmatullah had gone to Haramain Sharifain. he learned the uh, Sihah Sitta, the six famous kitabs of hadith. He got permission to narrate these hadith kitabs. And for the next 30 years of his life, Shaulillah Rahmatullah continued spreading the knowledge of the Qur'an and hadith. He taught the people Qur'an and hadith. Thousands of people benefited. And the knowledge of the Qur'an and hadith became alive all over India. And never mind all over India. And throughout the world. Today, whatever benefit generally is Qur'an and hadith, which has taught in that way was through the barakat of Sha'a wa'la wa rahmatullah. Wa spread his knowledge throughout the breadth and length of the world. So much so that even if a person goes to Sharif uh, Sharifin, the imams of the haram, they had no standard of hadith. They had to take the standard of hadith from our ulama of India also. Any of that? There was one great Yemen sheikh in South Africa. Um, I forget his name now. He was our Ustad's Ustad. Ustad uh so he was a very great Yemeni scholar. So I was surprised to find out also that his son also went to the Ulama of Joband, because there was Madrasa Solatia in Makkah Mukarrama. So he studied there. And then he from there he got knowledge of Hadith, and then he came to South Africa. And then he taught. Many people became hafiz at his hands. And uh many people benefited from him. He was a Yemeni scholar, but then also his son of the hadith came from, from the Ulama of India. So this Shawlullah Rahmatulali was the mujadid of his era. And Allah Ta'ala used him in a great uh, revival and reformation of the Ummat. Sheikh Abdul Haik Qatani Rahmatullahi writes, that Shaawalullah was from the unique and exceptional Latter-day scholars, in knowledge, in practice, in prominence. Allah Ta'ala brought alive Hadith and Sunnah in India, after this knowledge had died out, through him, his children, his grandchildren, and his students. By Allah, he is worthy of the greatest admiration and honor. One of his great Ustads in Hadith, Sheikh Abu Tahir Muhammad, he says that, Sha rahmatullah, took the Senate, the chain of narration of Hadith from me, and I will take the meanings of the Hadith from him, the understanding of the Hadith from him. So this was the first thing which he spread, the teaching of the Quran and Hadith. Number two, he trained pupils in diverse branches of Islamic learning, and he entrusted them with the task of enlightening people regarding the true nature of Islam. He had a madrasa called Madrasa Rahimiyah And this was the center of Islamic change and re- renaissance in the sub- subcontinent All ulama came from all different different places And after being, becoming trained they, they went and they became the torchbearers of Islam in the subcontinent The third thing was Allah Allah had inspired him with an amazing understanding of Fiqh and, and a hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu So he got such scholars who were experts in Fiqh also And in the hadith of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam then, also, many beautiful kitabs, Shawalullah Rahmatullah, they wrote. And these kitabs, they altered and changed the mindset of the public and the ulama with regards to Islamic values. He was, within 30 years, he wrote more than 30 kitabs of outstanding merit in Arabic and the Persian languages. On tafsir, he wrote on hadith, on fiqh, on Tasawuf, aqa'id, al asrar, the secrets and wisdoms behind the laws of sharia. And about the Sahaba, he wrote against the Shias also. Then, inshallah, in his time, there was tasawuf and taskiyah. And there was many, many things which was wrong in there. So he urged for a reform. All his uh, innovations must be removed. And uh, he tried to show all the evils of the Sufis at that time. And how can it be corrected? Then number six, what he did was, he wanted to reform the social ills of that era. There were many sicknesses. Of the, of the people And he, he wrote many remedies for them He explained first the sicknesses For example There was unnecessarily A lot of argumentation Bickering among scholars uh, Hanafi, Shafi Fighting amongst themselves Whereas most of those Ikhtilaf and differences Was afdal, khair afdal This person is, This view is more better And this view is less better Which one must a person follow So in today's time We got Hanafis, we got Shafis. In those times If a person was a Shafi He was like a person on Batil On falsehood And he's going to Jahannam Such such severe ikhtilaf indifferences there was So he tried to explain to the people that it's not like that there That most of the ikhtilaf indifferences is That this one view is better You read Amin loud You read Amin soft Both is the practice of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Some people read soft, some read loud Which one is better and which one is not better Uh, Many of them they felt at that time Or even before that That if a person is doing this one way Then he is on, on falsehood He's not, uh, we can't even perform salat behind him So there were severe uh, differences like this Similarly there were many un-Islamic customs Because the Muslims were joining with the Hindus For example the marriages, very similar like the Hindus So many of these fitnas we see in today's time we get very worried But there's nothing new, it was in those times also And uh, the in- uh, invitations, festivals and ceremonies of the Hindus Which the Muslims were doing Widows to get married again, people regarded it as shameful and evil. They never allowed it. So he wrote against this year. Drinking, prostitution and gambling was common also amongst people. He wrote against that. And many people uh, started worshipping the graves of Buzuru. spies people used to go to the graves, so he wrote against this. Then, number seven, he looked at the, uh, the factors responsible for the economic degeneration of the Muslim society. And he tried to show the Islamic principles. And he said that capitalism is wrong also and socialism is wrong. These are two different ways. And in, in the middle is the Islamic way. And he wrote in one kitab, beautiful kitab, hujjatullahi al-baliha. It's a very beautiful kitab of his, which is a kitab which shows the asrar and the secrets of Shariat. This was a special kitab. You see, never before in the, in the history of Islamic, uh, the Islamic scholarship was a kitab written like of, this, of this caliber. And he said that because now in the next few centuries, people will be using their brains to understand sharia. Shariat. There is Muslims supposed to understand and say Sami'ana wa ta'na hear and obey, but Allah Taala inspired him that unfortunately many people will become slaves of their intellect. So in this Kitab he writes now all the uh, the secrets behind the commands of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. It's a very beautiful Kitab. So in there also he mentioned the evils of capitalism. This brought about the fall of the Roman empires. So he explained this here, and he was critical of the economic exploitation of the poor people. Because this had caused a lot of instability in the world. He even criticized the the leaders, the Muslim leaders at that time, because of wasting money, all the taxation they are giving, the drinking, the uh, zina which they were making. And he wanted an Islamic state in which the governor was ruled by Quran and Sunnah. And you must not have any exploitation of the people. Then number the last point, which is mentioned about him, he was aware of the political conditions and the dangers facing the Muslims of India in the era. So he wrote to all great, big kings, trying to explain to them to stop the rot, which he saw on the political scene. He wanted the Muslims to get united, and then they would be able to fight off the the, the British who were trying to rule the country. So anyhow, he wanted to bring also the, the Islamic Khilafat following the example of the Khalifah Rashidin. So know this was Shahabul Laylah alaikum, thinking. Uh, according to Monana Qasim He said If Allah Ta'ala had only created In the land of India This would have been sufficient For the entire land of India to have pride That one person Allah Ta'ala created And what khidmat of deen he had done Anyhow after he passed away His son continued his work Aziz And for his brothers and family members He promoted his father's mission For the remaining portion of his life One of the things was he planted the seeds of antagonism against the British. He was the first person to pass a fatwa that we can now go against the British people and their supporters in India. Because of the Shia, there were four battles which took place in a place called Mysore. Sultan Tipu himself he actively engaged against the enemy. He was martyred in 1799, and unfortunately his, his chief general Mir Sadik, he was a Shia, he betrayed him for 22,000 acres of land offered by the British. Most of the time you will study Islamic history you will find That always it was the munafics and the hypocrites who Were the biggest cause And most of the times it was the shias Who were the cause of the muslims losing battles Whether it was the Tatars, Whether it was the Islamic khilafat in the beginning in The time of Uthman radiallahu anhu, There was always this group of hypocrites And most of them they were what you call shias Who were the ones who were the causes Of the destruction of the Islamic state so this also happened to him this person was a Shia and he was his chief general He didn't know and he sold uh, 22,000 acres of land he got and because of that they lost the battle At that time there was a person by the name of Sayyid Ahmad Shaheed Rahmatullahi A student of Shabdul Aziz Rahmatullahi So many people were attracted to him and he was a very pious people Thousands of people changed their lives Thousands of people accepted Islam on his hands So he encouraged the Muslims to submit their names to go and Try and free the lands They went he went to a certain place in Northwest India Which in today's is part of Peshawar and Mardan in Pakistan And he wanted to have a Khilafat of Islam based on the Quran and Sunnah to spread throughout India So and whatever the Quran Sharif says whatever the Sunnah says So together he set out from 750 warriors with him and 10,000 murids from Rai Bareilbi they went First, they went against the Sikhs. So there were many Muslims living in Punjab at that time, but they were humiliated and harassed. There was one person by the name of uh, Ranjit Singh. So he started oppressing the Muslims. He turned the courtyard of the Shahi Masjid into a stable and the, the honor of the woman was taken away. So Sayyid Ahmad rahmatullah, said we have to go and fight against these people because they are taking, destroying our people, killing our people. So anyhow, they went and he started establishing a Khilafat on the northern, northwestern frontiers, like how the Khulafa Rashidin had done, Shariat was enforced as a law, finance, administration, they had Islamic courts, everything was brought there. They continued advancing, they came to the, the mountains of Balakot. In 1831, this happened. But unfortunately, one of the villagers betrayed the Mujahideen to the Rajah's forces. So he attacked at night from the rear of the mountain. And they beheaded Shah Ismail Sayyid Ahmad Shaheed while he was in Sajda in Tahajjud Salat. On the same day, his vice chairman Shah Ismail Shahid Rahmatullah, Shah rahmatullahi, rahmatullahi, his grandson, he took command And he fun- continued fighting for the next four days So one Sikh person verbally abused Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam So Shah Ismail Shahid Rahmatullah said By Allah, I will not die until I have beheaded you When they attacked Shah Ismail Shahid Rahmatullah, his head got severed and he fell to the ground and he's got no head But because he had taken a qasam, there is a hadith of Nabi sallallahu That there are certain servants of Allah If they take a qasm, they might be Ash'ad aghbar Dishevelled, hair is dishevelled The clothing is full of dust But if they take a qasm in the name of Allah, Allah will make them fulfill it So his hair was severed Miraculously Allah made it such That He held onto his sword, his no head And he ran after the enemy who spoke ill of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. From a distance of 200 meters He threw his sword on the enemy The sword found its way through the enemy's body and he fell to the ground. He also fell onto the ground. About 450 Mujahideen were martyred and only 100 returned. But it was no way a defeat. Now many, many people started standing up against the British people. About 1831 now, the ulama realized that the government is getting stronger and stronger in the country. So they had many, many meetings. Many battles were fought against the British. In 1856, senior ulama of India... We met. So, Monana Jafar Tanasri. Monana Wilayat Ali, Hajim Dadullah, Monana Qasim Nanotwi, Monana Rashid Ahmad Gangoi, Hafiz Amin Shaheed. So, Monana Qasim Munanotwi asked them, That Aren't you aware that the British are sitting right on our heads? They have laid a snare of their rule throughout the country. They want to establish Christianity throughout the country. We lose our deen. So, we should either be cut into pieces or we fight them till the end. We can't allow the British to rule our country. So one person said, we are very few in number, our uh, resources are limited. So he asked them, is our number less than the people of Badr? There were 313. So the people got ready. In 1856, there was a battle of 1857, the battle of independence. So the Muslims fought, and actually the non-Muslims, what they called us here, the British used to call this the um, the mutiny. Uh, Like they had done. Zulam and oppression, there is a mutiny But actually there is a war of independence That's our, our name for it So the One front was Mawlana Jafar Tanesri, And one was under Hajim Haji Mladullahi This Mawlana Jafar Tanesri. He was eventually caught and locked up And taken to Andaman Islands, Kalapani When recently We had suffered to uh, Indonesia, Malaysia So just before reaching Thailand About one hour away we were passing over this Andaman islands and i'm thinking to myself yeah so far and where thailand is and where england is the i mean where india is and thousands of miles away they brought them onto this onto this island and for about no 20 or 30 years he remained in jail but there's an amazing kitab on this it's called the island of black waters my brother translated this kitab in english the island of black waters and uh, they got a whole history of this person, this Manana Ja'far, Tanesri, and how he went to jail. It's a very amazing thing. And how Allah's help and assistance came to him while he was in jail. This was regarded as a very bad place, and how much of oppression. But when he went there, Allah Allah's help came that some of the leaders changed. They were very soft towards him, and he knew how to write and read. So they gave him a very good job there also. He was a prisoner. And how he gets married also. He had children also. And all the people who hated him and his enemies. How they tried to disgrace him and Allah made him give him so much of honor. Eventually after 20 or 30 years he comes back home and he comes with his family and he comes with his money and all of that. Allah gave him is that an honor uh, that British person they wanted to kill him actually they, in, in, in court and they had held a rope that you know kill you. So he said uh, life and death is in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The, and the same rope was used for another English person. <laughs> They didn't kill him eventually, the judge changed his ruling He said, no, these people are getting too excited They're going to pass away as shaheed So we can't let them be happy So they changed their decision, that we don't kill them Put them in jail So they oppressed them to a certain extent But then after that he writes how Allah's help and assistance came to him It's a very amazing story, which rekindles a person's iman So anyhow uh, Unfortunately the Muslim people They lost this battle Because of uh, limited resources and a betrayal of a few people and There again it was betrayal So they failed to win this war against the British It was uh, the system of Allah Salah. They lost that battle But eventually there was so much of goodness Which came out for the Muslim Ummah Darul Um was formed because of this yeah. What happened now in 1857 After the, bat- the termination of the battle The British viceroy to India He called the ministers And said now how can we consolidate The British rule over India So one person said of all the entire population of India the problem we got is with the Muslims. They are very vigilant The battle of independence was fought by the Muslims As long as the Muslims got within themselves the spirit of giving their lives for Allah We won't be able to rule over them The first thing we have to remove the spirit The only way we can do this is you must get rid of the ulama and you eradicate the Quran Two things get rid of ulama eradicate the Quran. So they started now following this in 1861 the government launched a campaign against the Quran. 300,000 copies of the Quran were set alight by the government. 300,000 copies. And then they said, now we'll have to get rid of the ulama. So, one, Mr. Thompson writes, from the year 1864 to 1867, the British government resolved to eradicate all the ulama of India. These three years were the worst, most heart wrenching periods of Indian history. The British hanged 14,000 ulama to death. They say not a single tree tree was spared the neck of the ulama. They were wrapped in pigskins and hurled alive into the blazing furnaces. Their bodies were branded with hot copper rods. They used to be made to stand on the backs of elephants and tied to the high trees. They would hit the elephants, the elephants would run, and they would be left hanging on the trees. Up to 80 ulama were hanged every day. Sometimes the ulama were wrapped up in sacks and dumped into the rawi river of Lahore. And then they would take a hail of bullets and pump it into there, so that definitely that person is dead. This person, this non Muslim person, is saying, This Mr. Thompson. As I got into my camp at Delhi, I perceived a stench of flesh, smelling flesh. I stepped out and I went behind my camp. I saw a blazing fire of live coals. I saw 40 naked ulama being let into the fire. Then another 40 ulama being taken. The clothing was taken off their bodies in front of me. The English commander told them, Oh, Malvis, just as these ulama are being roasted over the fire, you also will be roasted. Save yourself. Just say, I was not, I was not part of the 1857 uprising of, against uh, of freedom. The minute you just say, I wasn't part of it, I'll free you. Mr. Thompson says, by the Lord who created me, not one of those ulema said any such thing. All of them were roasted over the fire. Another group was brought and roasted. Not a single alim surrendered to the demands of the British. All the educational institutes which were teaching when the British came to India, in Delhi alone there was 1,000 educational institutes. All of them were closed up. The funds, there was a lot of okaf work that people given, so these work trusts were normally used for the madrasas, for the masjids All of them were completely stopped. They were completely destroyed. Many families in Bengal, they used to bear the entire expenses of the madrasas. Their own children received education there. And the children of the poor neighbors. All these family educational institutions they dwindled and they fell into poverty. The British government went beyond this, and all the income which was coming from the Muslim people, they completely misused all the income. Because they didn't want any religious education. So one British person, W. W. Hunter, says, with a view to destroy the religious and personal laws of the Muslims. An act was passed in government by which the Muslims were deprived of the management of their religious affairs by officially appointed functionaries. That means now there was no Qadis, there was no judge, because if you've got a Qadi, the Qadi will be in the, in the, in the, in the courts and he will pass decisions for the Muslim people. So they removed all of these things. So there was no dignity at all for the Muslim people. One biographer writes that after 1857, the conditions of the Muslims began getting worse and worse. Many ulama were mercil- mercilessly martyred. Thousands of women became widows, no one to care for them. Children were roaming the streets, there was no parental guidance. Wealthy Muslims were living in palatial homes, now they had to live in informal settlements. They had nothing at all. The last Mughal emperor, Bahadur Shah Zafar, he was arrested and exiled to Rangoon. If they had any slightest doubt about I mean, any Muslim person, he was hanged immediately without any trial. Most of the wealthy Nawabs who used to run madrasas. They were selected by the British and hanged in public, so all of their work must come to an end. Their factories, their properties, and their wealth were usurped. Their children and grandchildren became eligible for handouts. Despite all of this difficulty and hardship, the Muslims in India still kept the uh, the Iman alive. He lost his wealth, he lost his belongings, but the wealth of Iman, which was in the heart, nobody could take that away. So the people, they wanted to protect it. So after killing as many ulama as possible, now you got no ulama, you got no Qurans. Now they said, let us attack the iman of the Muslims. So Christian missionaries now in India, in large numbers, they began roaming the streets of India, misguiding the common Muslim. So whichever ulama were left, now there were very few ulama, but they were very worried. The English put a stop to the Persian language, and they replaced it with English. They then one appointed by the person by the name of Lord Macaulay. Macaulay. And he must amend the whole education system in India. He put English subjects into the school curriculum, and anything which had a link with Islam, he removed it. Remember, in the past eras, I was still, I was, from the time of Umar, the maktab system was set up. Hazrat Umar radiallahu was the person who introduced the, the maktab system. And the maktab system, that means whatever worldly education we were getting, was through the maktab system. You go to maktab, you learn Quran, you learn hadith, you learn fiqh, you learn adab and etiquettes, and then you learn worldly things also. So the main thing was, was Deen and this was the worldly education was by the side of it. So every child would go, he would learn the basics and he would learn Deen. But after they came now, the way they put the system was that a person only learns Dunya. And there must be nothing of religion in their whole syllabus. So the motive was to create such a mindset in the Indian that a native would outwardly look like an Indian, but from within his heart, soul and mind, he would be British. They were going to achieve this in the name of education. So Lord Macaulay had announced in a speech that amongst the specialities of this new education will be whoever goes through our system of education will be Indian by face and skin. But in heart, soul, and mind he'll be British. Uh, His heart will be British, but his face and skin he'll be an Indian person. So what was the solution out for the Muslims now? No Dini Madaris. They destroyed all the buildings of the madrasas, they burned the Qur'an, the Islamic books, they killed the ulama. The only way now to protect Islam in the sunnah was to again bring dini ta'alim alive in India. So Hazrat Murana Qasim, they had already given a fatwa, I mean uh, they had given a, do you call it a warrant of arrest for him, he must be killed. They were looking for him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected him in amazing ways uh, and he also had courage, it's famous about him that he was hiding in a certain place and the British actually what happened they came to the masjid in Joband, he was very simple looking and when they came there they see him sweeping the floor so they asked him uh, where's Qasim Murana not?" you know they thought he's an alim he'll have a big amama and a smart looking dress whatever he's a big alim he is and he was a very simple person his amama also was very simple so Murana Qasim you with know, he didn't want to lie that time also so he was standing, he took three steps back. And he said, Morana Qasim was there just now. <laughs> he was there just now. So when the people heard this, they, they thought he's gone somewhere else now, so they quickly went and they started looking for him. Then he Morana Qasim, ran away to his brother-in-law's house, or some family person's house. The British got news of this here, so they came to the house to look for him. His family member, his brother-in-law was very worried. So he said, no, you go away from here. don't worry. I'll sort it out. So they knocked on the door. He opened the door. They say, we have come to look for Morana Karsin or not. He said, you can come inside and check up. See what, uh, you can come and look for him here in the house. He's speaking to them. Now for a person to have so much of courage, normally if a policeman comes, we start shivering. But here, he was a very strong person. So he took them in the house. He took them, he showed them the whole house, everything like that. They came out, they said, no, we can't find him. It doesn't seem like he's here. And anyhow, they went away. So Morana, he continued hiding for a while, maybe one or two years. And then in the third year, he went for Hajj. He went and said, now maybe when i go for hajj. And Allah Ta'ala made it such, after about three years, the British, they passed a new rule that all the oppression, whatever, has come to an end. Uh, we st- we're stopping all of this. Like, no more killing, whatever. And we're giving uh, like, uh, amnesty to everybody. So after killing so many people, we are the people, spreaders of peace. And we have come to stop all of this, and people are fighting. And, so we are spreading peace. So anyhow, they came back you now. Now the Muslim people were worried. Every single Muslim person was worried. If people were crying, families were destroyed. And the Muslims had lost all their belongings, money they had lost, and they had lost, maybe their worry was about their deen and iman. There were two groups amongst the Muslim people at that time. The question was, must we try and uplift ourselves materially and improve our standards of living, or should we be more concerned about protecting our iman and maintaining our identity as Muslims? So there were two groups of Muslims. The first group said, let us look at the Muslims first and then at Islam. Look after the Muslims and then we'll worry about Islam. The second group said, no, we'll worry about Islam first. First comes Islam and then the Muslims. Islam is more important than the Muslims. And once somebody asked, Mufti are you from Jamaat-e-Islami? He said, no, I'm from Islami Jamaat. So he said, what's the difference? He said, Jamaat-e-Islami, they worry about the Jamaat first and then Islam. And Islam is Jamaat, we worry about Islam first then the Jamaat. So that's exactly the same thing. Uh, is the Muslims more important or is Islam more important? So there was two groups. So the first group was Sayyid Ahmad Khan. Sir Sayyid Ahmad Khan, he became a sir also, he was knighted by the queen. And he was the founder of Aligarh University. And the second group was Hujjatul Islam, Hazrat Mawlana ali the founder of Darul al So Sayyid Ahmed Khan, he was employed by the East India Company before the uprising of 1857. He worked as a deputy collector. He had a lot of regards for the English people. They acknowledged his loyalty. They gave him many gifts, many lands, awards. He saw the atrocities of the British against the Muslim people. And he understood the power and the might of the English government. So he felt that the only way that the Muslims can be saved from the harm of the British was that we must surrender to their strength, accept their rule, adopt their ways and cultures. This is the only way the Muslims will be able to survive in india so he felt i must establish an islamic university educate the muslims with secular knowledge so that they could pro- progress materially they will get these qualifications they will get good jobs within the government and they will live in peace so he ma- made on madrasa called madrasa ul ulum later it was called Aligarh university he also felt necessary that the muslims must forget their old culture and they must educate themselves with secular knowledge So then he felt the Muslims will progress rapidly now With this education They will get good salaries They will have comfortable lifestyles They won't feel inferior to the English He drove this idea It was well received by the English authorities And then he started using the Quran and Hadith To support his ideologies And many of the ulama they felt very uncomfortable Whatever the British said Whatever science said He tried to prove it from the Quran If Science said there is no such thing as Jinnat So all the eyes of the Jinnat He will now interpret it To have some other meaning if science said a certain thing that we don't agree with us, say the Qur'an it doesn't, many of the miracles of the Qur'an Sharif, uh, he said he rejected them. So he wrote a tafsir of the quran karim in which he expressed his, many of his own thoughts and imaginations. Uh, so, and he, he, his own people started opposing him also. Their own people, they also realized that this man, this is against Islam. I mean, The clear text of the Qur'an-i-Karim, أَلَمْ uh, Tara faal ashabil as Habul for us, it was a miracle. Allah Taala sent the birds and they came and they shot. They were low and they shot the pebbles down and they destroyed the elephants. So He said, No, it wasn't a miracle. The birds were flying. They were very high. And the higher you fly and you send down something, it uh, it goes faster. And the faster it goes, it's like a bullet, like how a bullet will go through and it'll kill an elephant. So that's each bullet went through and they kill the elephants. So it's completely in accordance with scientific uh, methodology and understanding. Whereas we all know it is a miracle of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam So all the miracles of Nabi Islam Alaihi He started rejecting it So there was one friend of Sayyid Ahmad Say Sayyid Murana Ali Baksh So he says the public were opposed to his views That you're not standing in the defense of Islam But rather in defense of the English government So now we have to protect Islam in its pure and pristine manner Rather than starting a new creed and culture So when Sayyid his object was They must get money And then it will help the common Muslim people However, unfortunately, only the rich people managed to benefit from his education because the fees of that university were not affordable by the, normal, by the middle Muslims and by the low-class Muslims. And eventually, Dean came out of the lives of those people so much so now they wanted people to perform Salat there. But they didn't want to charge him too much. They say, if you don't perform Salat, we're going to charge you a penalty, five rupees or ten rupees. So there were some people among those people who were working, they were staying there. So in the beginning of the month they will come with 300 500 rupees to say yes we're paying for the whole month so we don't have to perform salat so the objective also of not of encouraging the people to perform salat this actually this whole university would have been completely destroyed and atheism would have spread from there Hazrat qadi credit went there and he gave one bayan there and he was booed off they actually chased him off and these people what ideologies they had but then it was through Hazrat it more in the jamaat and started making effort in Aligarh University Many of the people, as the people went out in the part of Allah in Jama'at And the ideologies changed And mashallah they came back and many, many people started going out in Jama'at And this changed the whole ideology and the thinking of the whole university So the Iman, if the people was actually saved Through the effort of the work of Dawat and Tabligh So Sayyid, Sa- 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 he felt If a Muslim becomes wealthy, he's successful Whether he practice Islam or not And he would advise other people to leave out practicing Islam rigidly Adopt the ways and the culture of the English. Whenever he spoke about the Islamic way of life, it was very inferior. And many ulama became upset and they spoke against his views. Our ulama felt that Islam is the first thing you give priority to Islam. If Islam remains, everything remains. If Islam is lost, everything is lost. So the British, when they had taken over India, their object was to destroy Islam completely. And the biggest threat in India was the, the Muslims and Islam, not the Hindus. They felt that if they destroyed Islam, the government will remain perpetually in India. Otherwise, there was always a fear they lose their power. And that's actually what happened. But Hussein a man who fought against the British, and eventually the British in 1948 or whatever, they were forced to leave India. The ulama had seen now that these people, they were preaching Christianity. Every village had a church, a missionary school, and a missionary hospital. All kinds of perks were given to the Christians. They would give out literature to every person. Many printing presses were open, they started spreading their books in every house, thousands of priests came from England, they would grow about to the Muslim people and preach to them. Every day there was a special column in a newspaper which would have the names of all of those people who became Christians. In this way they were encouraging the people to become Christians. Ulamas say that it was very sad, it was history going no repeat itself. What happened in Spain, 700 years the Muslims ruled. Eventually. The jami masjid of Kurtuba, which had one time five times Azan was given. It was completely shut down uh, In other places hundreds of masajid were changed into churches even in today But now alhamdulillah, it has changed in Kurtuba. It was difficult to find a suitable place to perform salat also Then we look at Bukhara Samarkand uh, Look the great Muḥaddithin, Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim, Imam Dawud came from these countries These were the centers of Islamic learning when Islam was attacked The Islam- existence of the Muslims in those areas came to an end Thousands of madaris and masajid were destroyed. So the ulama said, no, "We have to look after Islam. How are we going to do this?" So they, they put their trust in Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. They begged Allah Taala to guide them. Hazrat Kasi, not with he started one madrasa. They were prepared to eat and uh, dry bread and water for survival. They would live in small dark dwellings, but they were not prepared to become the students of the British. They were not going to change dina Islam for others. They were not going to be overhauled by dictators They will stand up for Islam under all circumstances When the British came in 1608 I told you there was 1000 educational institutes in Delhi alone 1866 there wasn't any Islamic institute So when Munana Qasim Rahmatullah had a dream And he saw Nabi Sallallahu in a dream And his, his, his in-laws was from Deoband So he was instructed by Nabi Sallallahu going to build a madrasa there So he went under one pomegranate tree In one place in the courtyard of the Chatta Masjid the foundation of the madrasa building started eight or nine years later, but the madrasa started one student and one ustad Our madrasas start like this yeah. One ustad, one student under one tree A madrasa doesn't need buildings It doesn't need all of those things And most of the time we'll see our madaris when they start off, they start off very simply And Allah gives Barkat thereafter. after So For a long time they were speaking Of starting a madrasa So at one day at the time of Ishraq, Haji Abid Hussein. One buzruk of Dioban, he took a white shawl. He put three rupees inside there. He went to Chetta Masjid and he told, he met Maulana Mehthab Ali Sahib. He put six rupees in the shawl. Fazul Rahman Usmani Sahib he put twelve rupees. They went to Maulana Zulfikar Ali Sahib rahmatullah he took out twelve rupees. Other Kiram all gave this year. By the evening, Haji Sahib had collected three hundred rupees. Now people started giving whatever money they could do. So the great Buzruks and pious people, money was collected from them for I remember our when he wanted to start our madrasa in Azadwal, he did the same thing. He didn't take money from the rich people, he went to the ulama first. And he went to each alim and he said that, uh, I'm starting a madrasa. Whatever you want to put, he gave him the empty envelope, you put whatever money you want. I won't know how much you put inside. And then different, different ulama gave money. And one alim gave quite a big sum. And the land of the madrasa was acquired with the wealth of the ulama only. Uh, that, that these pious people, it's only Allah, their money, how halal that money is. And Allah puts and blessings in that. So at that time, Hazrat Mulana Qasim, Nanati no, Rahmatullah, was in at another place. So Haji Abid Hussain told him, Please come to Diyoban. I got enough funds now to start the madrasa So, anyhow, they said that they hired one alim by the name of Mullah Mahmoud. He'll be the Ustad who the madrasa And there was no need for a big structure. They just used the, the courtyard of the Chata Masjid. A few rooms on the side was the boarding, and the shade of the pomegranate tree in the courtyard. Was a classroom to start lessons. To all the people gathered around there, the first student of the madrasa was also Mahmoud. The ustad was Mahmoud, the student was Mahmoud. So Mullah Mahmoud was the ustad, and Mahmoud Hassan, who eventually became known as Sheikh Al Hind Rahmatul was the first student. So, anyhow, on the 15th of Muharram, 1283, the English 1866, 30th of May 1866, on a Thursday, they started no grand opening, no posters advertising the opening. One Ustad, one student, it was actually the culmination of many people's duas for the protection of Islam in India. So from here we understand a madrasa is not a building. It's rather the fikir and concern to pass on the deen of Allah Ta'ala and the sunnah of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to the masses. And to revive deen in the ummah. Fifty years before this, one great person by the name of Sayyid Ahmad Shahid Rahmatullah we discussed, they were passing by the same area. And Sayyid Asab Rahmatullah said that at that time, I can perceive the fragrance of knowledge from this area, and 50 years later, this became a, a reality. So, normally before this, before Darul job started, they used to get money from the Okaf work people used to give, and the ulama used to get their salaries from there. Some people, without getting any money, they would teach from their homes. The students would get their own aboding, their own lodging. They had to buy their own kitabs, everything. So, only genie education was limited to a few people. Not everyone could afford accommodation, food, and studies. And many ulama, if you want to learn Nahwa, you'll go to one alim in one place. You want to learn self, you'll go to another alim. You want to learn fiqh, you'll go to a third alim. And you'll go study, stay by him for two years. It wasn't that many ulama were gathered together in one place. But Darul Ulum, the changed all of that. Amongst the first resolutions was that the madrasa will look after all the needs of the students. Second thing, they made announcements in the masjid. Uh, that any person wanting to study the deen of Allah Ta'ala and wanting to become an alim, he may come and study a Darul Um Jiyoband. So the de- it showed how far sighted the ulama were. Since the madrasa was run on public funds, they said now we have to have certain usul and principles. So Hazrat not Kassi Nanotvi wrote all the principles and the amazing principles, what he wrote there, eight conditions. That's, inshallah, after we'll continue with the eight conditions and then we'll continue with the second part of the. The series, inshallah this is coming near the end of the, uh, of the of the madrasa, the history of the madrasa. It is quite amazing. See what sacrifices, what qurbani those ulama made. Today, what we see our madrasa here is just one branch of those people, their qurbani and their sacrifices, and what they had given everything for the Deen of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, so that Islam must remain alive. So we chose our sacrifices, no matter how big they are. we look at those people's sacrifices, and we realize our weaknesses. Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala give us true love and muhabbat for our Deen, for Islam, and for propagating this the Deen. Inshallah, which will continue inshallah till the Day of Qiyamah. Wa aakhiru da'wana. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin.